0: Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, October 10th. That would be 10-10-10 for those who like numeric things on dates. Uh, my name is Doug Taylor. Uh, I appreciate you joining tonight. And we are starting in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 20. And the verse reads, A wise son gladdens a father but a foolish person shames his mother. So, what would you say are the questions? So, a wise son gladdens a father, but a foolish son shames his mother. What kinds of questions would we ask around that? Okay, why a son? You mean as opposed to a daughter? Yeah. Okay, good. Why a son? <clears throat> I I might ask the question, what is a wise son? Yep, very good. What makes a son wise? And how does he gladden his father? Why is he shameful to his mother? Yes, and I want to make uh, the important distinction that the verse doesn't say a foolish son but it says a foolish person so there seems to be a difference there between the first half and the second half uh, of what's happening And, and importantly why did King Solomon put in this particular juxtaposition now For those of you with um, real good memories, this verse is very similar to the first verse we did in this class, uh, some 50 plus classes ago, which is, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. And those two verses sound like they are virtually identical, but... King Solomon must be telling us something different here, since presumably he wouldn't bother to repeat himself exactly. So let's start with, what's a wise son? And I'll suggest that a wise son is one who sees and acts on the basis of consequences. He looks ahead at the consequences of potential courses of action, and he's willing to sacrifice short-term pleasures for long-term gains. And one of the results of this, in addition to the fact that he lives a, a better life because of that, is that it causes his father to be glad, because he sees that the wise son will make good decisions in his life, and that he thinks clearly and rationally. Now, Linda, you raised the question of why a son and not a father, sorry, not a son and not a daughter. Uh, I'm going to have to speculate here a little bit that that King Solomon is uh, focused on the son as a, uh, I guess, a prototype. I'm not so certain that he means that it would be significantly different for a daughter, uh, but fathers probably tend to be more um, aligned in terms of following in the father's footsteps than, or sons tend to follow in their father's footsteps maybe perhaps more than daughters do. But I don't know that he intends um, but you know a, a distinction on that, I do not recall a verse in Proverbs that has a juxtaposition of son and daughter. There might be one, uh, but I think it's possible that it might be just a prototype and Jimmy asked, is it possibly related to the more public life of the son than the daughter in past times? I think that could be correct I mean in the in past times the the son did take much more of a public role, and the daughter would be married and and be more involved in uh, the household and uh, raising of the children and that sort of thing. I'll also suggest that fathers tend to focus on their sons operating independently out in the world. So in this case, the father sees his grown son operating independently, making wise decisions, and this brings the father gladness. Now, a foolish son is the opposite of a wise son. And he operates on the basis of his emotions, which want short-term gratification. So he makes decisions that result in negative consequences on a long-term basis. He's more interested in his immediate emotional needs than he is on the long-term consequences of his actions. Now, question would become, is the verse saying that the person in the second half goes about shaming his mother, a foolish person shames his mother, and it would have to be a son relationship because otherwise it wouldn't be his mother, or is the verse saying that the shame of the mother is a byproduct of his foolishness. So we've got two possibilities. He either actively shames his mom, or his mother is shamed because of his actions. And I'll suggest that the second possibility matches the actions of the first half of the verse and that that interpretation then better fits the verse. Because the first half is talking about um, what the father feels as a result of the actions of the son. So, in the second, uh, it would seem to match better if we had that same juxtaposition. Um, now, interestingly, the Vilna Gaon's interpretation suggests that while verse 10:1, which is the very first verse we did, is talking about a son when he is in the child state, uh, and I believe the the text reads, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Here, as we were talking in the beginning, it says a wise son, but then the second half says a foolish person. And uh, Vilna Gaon suggests that um, while verse ten one is talking about a son when he is in the child state, this verse is talking about when the son is in an adult state. And uh, so, if he is a fool, he does. If he's local, he's going to do foolish things, and his mother will be shamed as a byproduct of that. If he's a fool and he lives far away, people will still curse the mother who gave birth to him and raised him. Uh, and Jimmy, right, she's considered the teacher of the children. So, if the children turn out foolish, she's blamed, and therefore she ends up being shamed. By contrast, if he's a wise son, he's operating wisely in the world, this will gladden his father and bring joy to him. Now, the verse doesn't say that this won't happen for the mother, but the first half focuses on the dad in contrast to the juxtaposition of the Vilna Gons approach with regard to the mother, the fact that she uh, raises him and and, uh, and A foolish son would therefore um, be seen as, uh, as shameful to her. I don't know if the verse intended this, but it's interesting to note that in, in my experience, when a son is grown and is successful out in the world, I think that it can reflect in, or sometimes in society reflects more on the father because people generally seem to presume that sons learn business skills from their dads, not so much from their mothers. And so if a guy goes out and he's very successful in business, you know, people look at the father and say, oh, you know, he's just like his dad or whatever it might be. Um, I'm not saying that's a proper way that people should think, but I think that it, uh, it I've noticed that, uh, that that does happen. So, the question comes up: what do we learn here that we didn't learn in verse 10.1? And I think it's about the consequences that a son brings to his parents once he's grown. So, verse 10.1 talks about the subject when the son was a child. This verse talks about a similar subject, but is focused on the consequences of the son's behavior or the child's behavior once he or she has reached adulthood. Okay? Any questions on that verse? Okay, we are at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 21. And the verse reads, Folly is joy to one lacking heart, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. Folly is joy to one lacking heart or lacking uh, an understanding heart or sense. But a man of understanding walks uprightly. So, what kind of questions does that raise? Okay, Jim, good. He's not even trying to juxtapose here. Well, maybe. Because he is talking about a person lacking heart in the first half and a person of understanding in the second half. But your point is, I'm assuming that, wait a minute, one's talking about folly, one's talking about walking, what do those have to do with each other? Charles, good, what exactly does it mean to have a lacking heart? Okay. (laughs) Ah, Jim, sorry I missed that, okay, good. Yeah, Linda, what's folly and what's heart? Okay. And and what does one half even have to do with the second half? I mean, they they hardly even seem related. So, and Jim, thank you. How does one get joy from folly? I mean, that's really strange. You know, we talk about fools doing foolish things. Like, how can that be? How can folly be joy? So, let's look at the first half. Folly is joy to one lacking heart or lacking sense, or lacking an understanding heart. Um, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, let me just repeat it for purposes of the recording, um, and, and others who might not have heard it. The term heart, when we talk about that now, in our time, is often used to talk about the emotions. But in the days when this book was written, Uh, heart meant the mind so in this case um, my understanding from Rabbi Moskowitz is that this is saying folly is joy to one lacking sense or lacking an understanding heart or understanding mind Um, okay and yeah Jim here says devoid of sense okay good good and you've asked also asked the question does a man of understanding not have joy ah good question Good question, let's explore that. So the first half seems to be saying that a person who lacks sense, that is he can't analyze a situation or an idea, he's basically just operating on his emotions, that that person will find joy in doing foolish things. Because he doesn't see, The ultimate consequences or ultimate cost of his actions, he'll actually get joy out of doing something stupid. Now, we've talked about fools before, but the fact that the foolish person in this verse actually finds joy in the folly suggests a slightly different category of a fool. And I'll suggest that this is a person who actually thinks he is smart. I mean, there are fools who know they are fools. And then there are fools who think they're smart. And I believe this is what's going on here because a normal fool would do a foolish thing, and sometimes he'll get immediate consequences and sometimes he won't. And when he gets immediate consequences, he may not think he's a fool, But he won't get joy out of it. But this guy is actually getting joy out of making stupid decisions. So it seems that he would have to think he is wise. So not only is he making decisions with negative consequences, he's fooling himself into thinking that he's actually smart. He's congratulating himself on his great skill thus bringing himself emotional joy. In other words, he's deluding himself. Now, what's happening in the second half? In the second half of of the verse, we're talking about a man of understanding. This would be someone who sees reality. He sees what's really going on in life. And as a result of that, the verse says that he walks uprightly. So what does it mean to walk uprightly? I'll suggest that it means that his actions and his speech are in accordance with truth and reality. The person has integrity, he conducts his life that way, he conducts his dealings with other people that way, he sees consequences, he acts according to those consequences. And I'll also suggest, Jim, to get to your point that the second half doesn't say anything about joy because the man of understanding's emotions are not the central focus of his life. What is important to him is that he operates his life according to truth and reality. So what's most important to him is that he walks in that upright path, uprightly. So the verse seems to be showing us where the fool Versus the man of understanding put their focus. The fool, in this case, is focused on the joy of his foolish actions, while the man of understanding is focused on living a life of integrity. Okay. Any questions on that verse? Okay. So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 22, which reads, Thoughts are frustrated for want of counsel, but through an abundance of advisors, they will be established. Thoughts are frustrated for want of counsel, but through an abundance of uh, survivors, advisors, they will be established. So what do you think? What kinds of questions crop up there? Thoughts are frustrated for want of counsel, but through an abundance of advisors, they will be established. Okay, Charles, thank you. What are frustrated thoughts? How how do you frustrate a thought? It's kind of an odd thing. Usually people are frustrated, but what does it mean that thoughts are frustrated? Um, and why do thoughts want counsel? Good, Francisca. Uh, you would think that people want counsel. It seems like an odd way for King Solomon to, to write this. And I'd add on to those questions, how does an abundance of advisors help? Because what if they're all wrong? And what does it mean that they will be established? I mean, is it the thoughts that will be established? And, and what does that mean? How do you establish the thought? So, and yes, Francesco, what kind of advisors? Okay, what if they're all really, really bad? Or, you know, all yes people or whatever it might be. What kind of advisors is King Solomon talking about here? So let's start at the beginning. Thoughts person has a plan. He wants to accomplish something, but his goal doesn't work out. Okay? We've all had this happen. We don't consider all the issues. Maybe we didn't consider all the angles. Maybe we didn't see everything. Maybe there are other factors at play that we didn't take into account. Maybe we did think of everything was possible to think of, and something came in out of the blue. If a person had a perfect mind and saw everything okay that might be different but which one of us does I mean we all see the world from our own perspective we come at it with all of our upbringing all of our backgrounds all of our prejudices all of our environmental influences all the things that color our thinking so that we see something a certain way now A person who doesn't take that into account, the fact that, you know, pretty much we're all short-sighted with limited vision, okay, unless we have really, really, really trained our minds, a person who doesn't take that into account is going to run into difficulties because things will happen that he didn't anticipate. So his thoughts of accomplishment and success will be frustrated because he hasn't considered everything. And they're going to be frustrated because because he didn't think of everything. That came about because he saw a limited vision of the situation. So the fact that he did not engage others to help him see a bigger picture That can cause his lack of success, lack of accomplishment, and the frustrations of his thoughts of success and accomplishment. That's, I suggest, what the verse means by counsel. He doesn't seek the input of others before undertaking his plan. He just sits down and draws it all out. Okay? I can tell you from personal professional experience that when I you know, approach a problem in business, usually if I sit down and write out what I think the solution is, and then I sit down with four or five of my colleagues and put that solution in front of them, and we talk about it for a while, what will come out of that will be something better than what I went in with. Why? Because I recognize that I see the world from a particular perspective. Other people will see it from another perspective, a different perspective. This is sometimes, not always, but sometimes, why organizations use committees. Because if you just have one person doing something, they'll come at it from a particular approach. You get five, six, ten people in a room, you'll get a whole kaleidoscope of viewpoints, and that can enlarge uh, the possibilities and help people see other consequences and other things that might happen, and thereby prepare for those. Now, The others who the person reaches out to for input must actually be advisors or counselors. In other words, um, to your point, Francesca, they need to be wise people who can truly expand your view of the world or your view of yourself or your view of the situation. Talking to just anyone isn't necessarily going to help. It needs to be someone wise who can augment a person's view in a positive and a helpful way. So, how, how, does, it, how does an abundance of advisors help? Because you get more perspectives, okay? more insights, you see more obstacles, and that's why the verse says an abundance of advisors, not just one. If you get one, okay, now there's two of you. But an abundance of advisors, you're going to see multiple viewpoints. And, okay, if you happen to see the world in a particular way and you're making a mistake or failing to see something, and that other person happens to have that same uh, weakness in their thinking or mistake in their thinking, other people in your advisor group can help point that out. Say, no, no, wait a minute, you know, you're going to stumble all over yourself on this point if you don't take care of this or that or the other thing. It's a little bit like, you know, the old story of what an elephant feels like to a blind person. You know, it all depends on where they're touching the elephant. And if they touch in one spot, they, they uh, describe the elephant based on what they're feeling. So if it's just you alone, you'll get one idea of the elephant, but with an abundance of advisors, you begin to get a much more complete picture of the elephant or in this case of reality of the situation that you're dealing with, that could be everything from a business decision, uh, where to go for education, uh, e- even you know if you're um, uh, you know considering marrying a person, you know, or considering hiring a person, you know, what what do people do when they when they go out to hire someone? They ask for references. What are the references to? They give you a broader view of the individual than you will probably get in the interview process that you had with them. So by doing that, you can make better plans and your thoughts can be established. In other words, they can be accomplished and you can achieve your objective. So the verse, as I understand it, is teaching us the consequences of relying on your own analysis of the situation versus the consequences of augmenting your analysis with the ideas of other wise people. And the consequences are essentially failure on the one hand, which is what happens in the first half of the verse, and success on the other hand, which happens in the second half of the verse. Okay, any questions on that? Let's move on to Proverbs 15, verse 23. And it reads, happy to the man who answers with his mouth, and a word in time, how good. This is a very interesting verse. Happy to the man, uh, and I believe this was uh, Rabbi Moskowitz's translation of the verse. Happy to the man who answers with his mouth, and a word in time, how good. So, what are the questions there? <laughs> yeah, what does that mean, Jimmy? You're right, Charles. A great point. What other way would he answer? Happy is to the man who answers with his mouth. I mean, what what else are you gonna do? Send him an email? You know, uh, uh, text him? I mean, this was written in the days before any of that. There, there's something very strange. You know. Yes, Jim, the good question. The response to whom? What, we're answering, who are we answering? What are we answering? What, what is this saying? Very, very cryptic, short verse here. So, Rabbi Moskowitz uh, said like this. He said, the verse is talking about ways of talking usually pleasantly, okay? But there are times when you shouldn't be pleasant. There are times to talk forcefully and maybe persuasively, but in general, you should talk pleasantly. And the Me'iri says saying here that the person who talks pleasantly is happy. So, what is the difference between this person and other people who speak? So, there is a kind of a person who reacts to a situation, and all of his answers are based on the situation itself. Then there's another type of a person who has a view of life, and he answers to another person, in an exchange, on the basis of his view of life. Okay, that second person, Rabbi Moskowitz suggests, is a happy man. Now, the the whole question of what what is being answered here is very. I think what helps us to understand what the subject is is that King Solomon isn't telling us what he's answering, and so we can, I think, draw from that that he's talking in general about uh, answering someone or having an exchange with someone, not the particular subject of what's being discussed at that moment. So happy, the person who talks pleasantly, is, uh, is going to be uh, a happy person. That's what the verse is suggesting now the second half a word in time how good the second half rabbi moskowitz suggests is talking about when it's not appropriate to say something pleasant it's intended to be how good it is to answer correctly even if the answer is not pleasant because sometimes there is a time to respond to someone you know, correctly and accurately, but the answer is not going to be pleasant, okay? Now, a person has to be able to evaluate any given situation to see what the situation demands or what the situation requires. Um, If you operate based on your personality, you may always talk nicely, or you may always talk angrily, or whatever your particular personality happens to be. If you're an angry person, you know, you'll generally talk angrily to other people. If you're a pleaser, okay, you'll generally talk nice to people, but that's coming from your personality. What's being suggested here is, that's not the approach. The approach is to analyze the situation and see what type of answer is actually needed so for example in parenting if you pick on a child too much the child closes you off you have to evaluate how much to reprimand a child which battles to choose and have a relationship with the child and only reprimand them where it's absolutely necessary otherwise you can end up you know shutting them down So the verse is teaching us that pleasant talk is usually good, but that there's a time not to talk pleasantly, but to give an answer that is the right one for the situation, and you have to analyze the difference between the two in each given situation that you run into. Francesca, it's a great question you ask. Is speaking the truth at the wrong time not good? Um, I think that the answer to that is yes. Um, And I'm trying to think of... Imagine a situation where someone is in great emotional pain, intense emotional pain, and they ask you a question uh, and you realize that answering them with the sort of complete blunt truth is sort of beyond what they can take at that moment, then it may be a time to temper that answer and deflect it. I'm not suggesting you you know, lie to the person but to temper that answer or modify it in such a way that the person can take. I, I guess one good example would be um, a person just barely coming out of um, uh, a, a different religious approach, who's still emotionally kind of tied to it, but is, has taken the first Uh, gentle steps toward trying to find what the truth is. If a person were to come along and say, and with the Torah approach, and like dump the whole load on them at that point, um, you could crush them. Uh, It would be more than they can handle. And so you would have to very carefully analyze the situation and say, what is the right amount to give them at any particular time that they can handle. This is interestingly, as I understand it, why the sages did not like to write books. Why? Because the sages, the, the, in, in those days, the, there would be teachers and then there would be students. And the teacher would work with the students and teach them Talmud and teach them Torah ideas. And they would get to know every student and some students learn fast and quickly and they maybe have a deep capability to be able to understand deep ideas and so forth others you know they don't quite grasp a concept as quickly you have to work with them a little bit more on it um, and so forth so the teacher got to know every single student and got to know exactly how to present an idea to them uh, and what they were capable of, and when it was appropriate to reveal an idea to them, when they were ready for it, and so th- in that kind of environment, um, you know, the the student could really tailor the learning to um, to the student. Uh, yes, Mona. Not everyone is is able to accept things at the same time. When you write stuff down. Yeah, it's available to more people, but suddenly you can't control that anymore. You don't have control of that student-teacher relationship. And somebody can read something and take it out of context, misunderstand it. Maybe they're not ready for it. It completely messes up with their thinking. Uh, and Jim, yeah, you've pointed out Socrates thought that books could be quite destructive. Uh, he was against those. Um, so uh, it, this verse is, kinda, it is tangentially, particularly in the second half, getting to that point, you have to analyze the situation and see what's appropriate to say at any given moment. Uh, And certain times it's a good thing to say something and other times, you know, it's best not to. So any comments or questions on that? Okay, good. Thanks. Yes, Rivka, absolutely right. um, That people have to be careful how they speak. And it has to be with the right tone. Um, An interesting aspect uh, to all this is, um, you know, for example, you could be dealing with two employees uh, or two students. Or two children, and one of them is got a personality such that you practically have to kind of verbally hit them over the head with something before they get it. Uh, and so you might have to, perp, you know, uh, you know, ad- adopt a certain tone so that they really get. Hey, this is a serious situation. Another person could be incredibly sensitive, and if you use that tone of voice with them, it would just crush them. So, you know, uh, (laughs) Jim, good point. That's true even of twins. Yeah, you have to know the personalities uh, and and get to know people and what they can take and and so forth. Some employees, you have to give them very clear directions. Look, don't do this because it makes a problem. Other people, they may be so sensitive that all you have to do is just suggest a different approach and they'll get it. Uh, So... Uh, Rivka, it's a very good point. It's very important to speak with with the right tone uh, and not everyone's able to accept uh, the same idea at the same time. Okay, Uh, let's go on to chapter 15 and verse 24. Very interesting verse, not that all the others aren't. Uh, The way of life is to go up in wisdom so that you should turn away from the grave beneath. The way of life is to go up in wisdom so that you should turn away from the grave beneath. Okay. What are the questions there? Should be a few. Okay, uh, Francesca, is grave a metaphor? Uh, That's a good question. That's a good question. What does he mean by the grave beneath? And Jim, how does wisdom push one away from the grave? Very good. Good question. A couple of others I might add to the mix. What is the way of life? I mean, everybody lives. So what what does it mean the way of life is to go up in wisdom and and why does it say go up you know what's with the up part what what's king solomon trying to get at there and and then it says you know so you should turn away from the grave beneath well how do you turn away from the grave i mean we all die and that's that's the the end of life is we all die and then why the very last word? It says the grave beneath. Why not just the grave? Why didn't he stop right there? Why did he put that word in there? It seems superfluous. I mean, graves are always under the ground, or almost always. So Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, very interesting interpretation. He suggested like this. He said the term from the grave. It says, so you should turn away from the grave. could be explained in two ways. Metaphorically, okay, and uh, Francesca gets to your point, is grave a metaphor? It means that you go up so that you turn away from a low place. The grave being a metaphor for a low place. That would be why it says the grave beneath. And what it means is it's saying a person should go up and not down. Okay? Thus, life should be a process of continually advancing, of constant development. There is no marking time. The verse is indicating that you can't stay stagnant You're either going up or you're going down. There's no middle ground. Okay? You're either moving forward or you're moving backward, but you don't mark time. And if you're not moving forward, you are moving backward. Okay? So, in this this interpretation, the going down or, or the grave beneath is referring to going down or not being involved in continually advancing up in wisdom. So it's making the juxtaposition of up as opposed to down. And what we're talking about here is the development of the mind. There needs to be a constant development of the mind. If you're constantly involved in learning and perfecting your thinking and analyzing your character, and so forth, there's a constant development going on. Yeah, we all have bad moments and we have bad days, but the question is, which direction are you moving? If you look at the graph, not just by the minute or even by the day, but you know, by the week and the month, w- what direction is your graph going up? Is it going up? Is it going down? Okay, so now, uh, Francesca, when you say the way of life is, is development of the mind, it's uh, the path of life is to be involved, or the way of of life is to be involved in development of the mind. That's the going up in wisdom, where you're involved in developing the mind. And what the verse is saying is that is the way of life. That is the way you want to be going. Okay. The the direction in the development of your mind should be constantly up so that you're moving away from your personality and your emotions and moving toward operating in the world of ideas. And Jim, you've asked, does the fact that it is up also suggest effort? Yes, I think it does. I don't think anybody gets a development of the mind without effort. Um you know it's a little bit like golf I don't know anybody that's born good at it uh, the, nobody that I know of is born uh, with a you know developed mind and doesn't have to work at it to make it happen so there's some effort and uh, in, in, you know when we think about going up a hill or up a mountain there's a certain effort uh, that goes along with that uh, and so thank you that's a good uh, a good point um, Okay, Rivka, let me go back to your comment. When your soul leaves you and goes up to Hashem, if you focus on wisdom or learning, then you do not worry about the grave. Yes, in this case, though, my my understanding of uh, Proverbs is that it is very practical and focused on life today, life here and now, what we're supposed to do in this life. Uh, So it's a very practical book, not particularly focused on the world to come, although the work that you do to have the best life here happens to also be the same stuff that prepares you well for the world to come. Uh, But my understanding of uh, most of Mishle is that it is focused on what actually happens here uh, in this life. Now, there is a second interpretation of this verse. Uh and that is that you either go up or you pay the consequences and the consequences are that you will die. Okay, this is a second interpretation different than the first. You either go up or you pay the consequences and the consequences are that you will die. All right. Now, in that interpretation, what's the problem? You either go up and you pay the, con- or you either go up or you pay the consequences, and the consequences are that you will die. What's the problem with that interpretation, or what's the, the a big question with that interpretation? Okay, friends, so thank you. What kind of die consequences if you don't develop your mind? Yeah, what does that mean? I mean, everybody dies. So how can the verse tell us that that's a consequence when it's going to happen anyway? So what kind of a die consequence do we actually get here? So when it says that you're going to die, it means that your lifestyle is very bad. Unhappiness shortens your life. Stress shortens your life. Conflict shortens your life. The consequences of a life that is not based on wisdom brings you results that can shorten your life. I mean, we all know this and there's all kinds of, as I understand it, studies now that show you know, conflict and stress and all the things that it does to us and people get you know ulcers, and they get back pain, and neck pain, and shoulder pain, and headaches, and uh, migraines, and you know all kinds of different things as a result of stress and living lives where they're in conflict. Um, and uh, my understanding is that there are a number of studies where they've taken rats and put them in situations where they're in huge conflict. They create a conflict for the rat and you know, look at what it does to them and uh, the consequences are not uh, not very good or pleasant. So, the verse means that you'll die earlier than you otherwise would. Yeah, we all die, but uh, the, the die refers to it'll happen earlier. And it also represents the idea that you have a terrible life along the way. I mean, conflict causes you to get old quicker, uh, and we just talked about stress and so forth. I mean, a person that's living that kind of a life is not having a very fun life. They're not having a happy life, they're not having a peaceful life. And so not only is it going to shorten it, the quality of what you have between here and the grave is going to be less. So the path of going up in wisdom, the life of thought, of analysis, of uh, operating in accordance with long-term consequences, that path is the way of life, literally, in this world. And again, note with Proverbs, this is not a, you know, pie in the sky, yeah, life's terrible here on earth, but wait till I get to heaven, you know, things will be better there kind of thing. Uh, that's not the Torah approach, and it's not the Proverbs approach. It's, the Torah approach is about living the best life that we can live here and now. And so this verse is talking about the life that we each live here every day at work with our families, with our friends, everywhere we go, every single situation that we're in. You know, are we applying wisdom to it and working to operate in accordance with that wisdom so we don't get caught up in the conflict and the stress and so forth that operating in accordance with our emotions can create. Also, there's a very interesting thing subtly to note in this verse. It says, the way of life is to go up in wisdom. The verse does not talk about arrival and i submit that there is no arrival it's about constant development the way of life is to be going up that's the arrival to be on the path of continual improvement and continual development that is the way of life it's not about arriving it's simply about being uh, on the path and being constantly involved in that development, so your path is up. Okay. And Linda, you said this sounds like what Hashem told Adam about uh, the Tree of Knowledge. Uh, it's a very interesting point. Uh, I think that with regard to the Tree of Knowledge, that's a whole separate, a whole separate issue. But there was an issue of. Uh, I'm assuming what you're getting to is the issue of life and death Uh, and so you know here it's in front of us the way of life is to go up in wisdom so you turn away from the grave beneath Um, you you recall from the Torah verse uh, where it talks about the blessings and the curses you know and God says choose life here it is (laughs) which one do you want And so that's the, I guess, the opportunity and the challenge for us to be constantly involved in that. Okay, any questions on that verse or this subject? Okay, Uh, I I notice we are just a, a couple minutes away from... Uh, our time, and I don't think we have time to do uh, another verse. So I, I would like to add, um, I guess, a a slightly personal note very closely related to this verse. Um, a neighbor of mine died over the weekend. And uh, w- when death occurs close to you, Uh, I mean, we all know that people are dying all over the world all the time, but when it happens close to you, it sort of brings the reality uh, of the finiteness of life home. And you realize that every one of us uh, has a limited number of days. I mean, we're all headed there. Uh, And so the question that to constantly ask ourselves is, am I focusing on what's most important? And am I doing uh, the things that, when I get to that day, I will look back on and say, yes, I spent that day wisely, and I spent that day wisely, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very satisfied with the way I spent that day. Uh, facing each day with, when I get it all done, That was another day of my life that I spent. And did I spend it wisely in a way that I look back on and say, Yes, that was rich, that was you know well done, or you know, I made good decisions. Or if I didn't, then I spent time and I analyzed why didn't and I learned from those things. Um, So it it reminded me of that very important. Uh, that very important uh, aspect of keeping perspective on life. Uh, because it's very easy for us to get caught up in just assuming, yeah, okay, there's another day. You know, the old saying, another day, another dollar. You know, I did this stuff, and okay, there's always tomorrow, and there's always tomorrow, and there's always tomorrow. And and that's not necessarily the case. Um, so we, we kind of presume that that will happen. You know, I'll wake up in the morning, but we might not. Um, and so we, we, it helps to, I think, look at that perspective of, did I spend this piece of my life uh, in a way that I'm satisfied with? And if I did, great. And if I'm not, well, then how can I spend the next piece of my life in a way that, you know, I'll be more um, satisfied with or proud of or feel like I, I spent very wisely? So... I hope that helps. Thank you all for joining, and just again to repeat, we will have class next week, but after that we will not have class for two Sundays, and then we'll be back together again on November the 7th. Thank you all very much for joining, and I hope you'll be able to join next week.